February is National Black History Month in the United States. It pays tribute to the generations of Black Americans, past and present, who've contributed and achieved so much despite the injustices they faced. It's also a time for us to just reflect more broadly about our past and our present in order to move towards a more just future in this country. I'm Rachel Martin. This is Up First Sunday. We thought as a way to recognize this moment, it would be good to bring in my friend and colleague Aisha Roscoe. Aisha recently put together a series of stories about the civil rights generation. She made it a point to talk to people you probably know and some you probably don't, ordinary citizens who made a difference in their own quiet ways. Aisha joins us now. Hey, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. So Aisha, you started your series by profiling a man named Fred Gray. What can you tell us about him? Fred Gray was born in what he calls the ghettos of Montgomery, Alabama. And it was in 1930s. So, I mean, really, he grew up during a completely segregated time, obviously. He was trained as a preacher, but he eventually became a lawyer. And really, he was one of the chief counsels of the civil rights movement. He had a motto that he often says is, to destroy everything segregated. He defended names that everyone knows, like Martin Luther King. He was good friends with Rosa Parks, who he used to have lunch with in his law office and talk about segregation and what they could do about it. Hmm. And this was before what happened on the bus. So they had been talking about this. You know, what she did on the bus was intentional. She wasn't just tired. Right, right. And so, you know, she was arrested for refusing to give up her seat on a city bus for a white passenger and Fred Gray told me that after that happened he went to the home of educator Joanne Robinson and he remembers it beginning this movement that would change the world here's an excerpt of the story that I put together that talks about that meeting we sat in her living room and planned what developed into the Montgomery Bus Boycott I said well you know I'm involved, and I'm concerned about the legal aspect of it. She said, well, why don't we just get a leaflet out asking the community to stay off of the buses and then meet at a church, and we'll decide where we go from there. I said, that's fine. The only thing with that is, if we're successful, and if people stay off of the buses, we have to have a plan as to how to keep them off of the bus till there's a non-segregated basis. In order to do that, we need to get a spokesman, somebody who can speak, keep the people together, and be able to communicate whatever our request is to the community and to the power structure in Montgomery. She said, well, Fred, I tell you who the spokesman need to be, my pastor. Martin Luther King Jr. haven't been in town long, He's only been here a year, have been involved in any civil rights activities, but one thing he can do, and that is he can move people with words. I said, that's who we need. And it was the beginning of what developed into the civil rights movement. I mean, it's just incredible to hear him <laughs> recount how 
they basically recruited Martin Luther King <laughs> into this. Yes. And uh, and it changed the world. It changed the world. And, you know, just someone saying, like, I know my pastor can preach. And <laughs> right. She was right. You know, she, she was, was right. very right about that. Um, he was able to move people with words. And the protests lasted, right? Like, they lasted more than a year. And even though Fred Gray made a point to emphasize, it was actually a lawsuit that led courts to rule that segregated buses were unconstitutional. So it wasn't just the boycott, it was the lawsuit. What changed the law was Browder versus Gale, the lawsuit that was filed. So I think today with all these problems we're having, it's going to take demonstrations, but We're going to still have to do whatever it takes to get the courts to rule properly. That's why registration and voting is so important, so we can elect the right people, so that the right persons can be appointed or elected to these judgeships, including when they are appointed to the Supreme Court. And we still have to have faith in the legal system because that's the system that has brought us so far, but we have to do all these other things to help that legal system work. Hmm, That's so interesting to hear him reflect on the challenges of, of today, and the fight continues for civil rights, but he still believes that the legal system is the way to really make change, that it has to come through a legal system. Yeah, and you know, he made that point, like I asked him and and really kind of pressed him and it, it didn't all end up in the interview, but just asking him like, you know, because people are so frustrated with the system and there's this idea that you gotta, you know, kind of take down the system. Right. But he says he understands the frustration, but basically, you know, like he said, the legal system can work. It's what this country has and to continue that fight. And I have to say, you know, he's in his 90s. He's still out there talking to young people. I think he said when I talked to him, he said he had a speech like the next day. So he's still getting his message out there and talking to people. And he's still working at his law practice. So he <laughs> he is still doing the work, right? Like he talked to me from his office. Right. That's amazing. Stay with us. We're going to have so much more of Aisha's reporting coming up. You're listening to Up First Sunday. We'll be right back. We're back with Up First Sunday. I'm Rachel Martin here with Weekend Edition host Aisha Roscoe talking about her reporting on the civil rights generation. So another person you profiled, Aisha, is someone who is trying to shape the now and the future by making sure that people do not forget what has happened in the past. Can you tell us about Joanne Bland? Joanne Bland is someone who loves Selma, Alabama. That is her hometown. (laughs) She has been guiding visitors through the city for 33 years. Wow. Yes. So she is a tour guide. Her company is called Journeys for the Soul. And the emphasis is on the fight for voting rights that culminated in Selma in 1965. Joanne Bland was born in Selma in 1953, and she has a story on just about every block. (laughs) And she took us on the tour in her car she was driving slow you know she won't worry about nobody else she was just trying to tell us the story (laughs) of selma this is our movie theater see that little window and the door with the four sections Mm -hmm. that was the colored entrance that's what they called us you know we paid our money at the window and then we went upstairs in the balcony 
where we threw things down on people's heads. <laughs> you know, Joanne's <laughs> tour is is like full of stories of civil rights history. I mean, she took me to Brown Chapel AME Church, where as a child she listened to MLK speak. Now, the one thing I remember, he was always eager to talk to us, young people. And when the elders would try to keep us away, he said, no, let them come, let them come. And he would ask you about your day, and you wanted to tell him every detail. And at 9 o'clock, I went to the restroom, you know, <laughs> stuff like that, yeah. just to stay in his presence. Uh-huh. And he always had a peppermint, a starlight peppermint. And he would always give you that peppermint. And to this day, I love peppermints. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love hearing her reflect on that. So when I think about the civil rights movement and Selma in particular, like a lot of people, the first thing that comes to mind is a visual, right? The Edmund Pettus Bridge. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Selma's place in civil rights history was really cemented beginning on March 7th, 1965, when civil rights activist John Lewis and Hosea Williams led over 600 people onto the Edmund Pettus Bridge. It was the beginning of a planned march to the Alabama State Capitol. But, you know, as is well known, on that bridge, um, they were attacked and beaten by white police. And, you know, Joanne Bland was 11 years old. She was on that bridge. Mm. And on our tour, she took me to a spot that you wouldn't think of, you know, when you think about this event. But it was the edge of what kind of looked like this rundown playground with a chain link fence and an old chipped pavement. I want you to stand on this cement. I need you to find a rock. Hurry up, little girl, then we got all day. It's cold out here. <laughs> Why don't you look over here? You see that rock? I see this rock. You know who stood on that rock? Who? 57 years ago? Who? Child John Lewis stood on that rock. Oh, wow. You see, you're standing on the last piece of the original cement where we gathered on what is now known as Bloody Sunday. I followed John Lewis and Hosea Williams up to that bridge to be beaten by law enforcement officers. Mm. You're standing on sacred ground. This is the cement I've been trying to save. Saving this cement is a calling for Bland. She went to college out of state, served in the Army, but decided to come back. Since then, she's dedicated herself to her hometown. She wants to build a park here to honor the city's contribution to America and have the cement be a kind of monument where future generations can walk in the footsteps of history makers. She sees it as a way to lift up this majority black community that struggles with poverty. This is urgent that we start to capture our own histories, that I'm one of the youngest people who participated. One of, not the youngest. But we're leaving here every day. And when we leave, those stories are gone. Who would tell the story? With that, we get back in the car and make our way along what's now Martin Luther King Street. This is First Baptist. First Baptist was SNCC headquarters. This is where they tried to teach me the principles of nonviolence. I flunked. <laughs> <laughs> we're probably about a mile from where the marchers were attacked on Bloody Sunday. This is also where I came back to. My sister and I, Linda, ran back here. We ran past our house thinking we didn't have time to unlock the door because those same men were chasing the marchers back. 
and we were terrified. And we kept running and we ran up those steps and went inside the church thinking we were safe. We were not. They came into the church and started beating people all over again. My goodness. Yeah, I saw them pick up a young man about 16 years old and just hoist him above their heads and throw him into the baptismal pool. What happened at that bridge didn't stop at that bridge. It happened out here all night long. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that that image of them being chased from the bridge and into the church yeah. um, has stayed with me. I, I just, it, it just blew me away, um, beating people inside a church. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a, another point that Joanne Bland makes clear on her tours is, you know, how much Civil War history remains tied up with the progress of the Civil Rights era. She ended our tour at this cemetery. This cemetery, I have a love-hate relationship with it. The trees are magnificent. They are beautiful. I mean, huge, huge magnolias and oaks. Oh, my goodness, it's just amazing. And then all this evil is inside of it. Mm. Bland drives through the dirt roads of Live Oak Cemetery. It predates the Civil War and includes a monument to Nathan Bedford Forrest, a Confederate general and KKK Grand Wizard. You would think the monument is old, like the cemetery, but it actually was put up after Selma elected its first black mayor in 2000. When I look at it, it says to me, You may have a Negro mayor, but I'm still here. We ought to find a way to change hearts. And the people who think like that are still here. And they're still fighting this war. Because there are Confederate flags up. Everywhere. We're We're looking at Confederate flags. But you can walk all day long, and you may find one American flag. I use this as a teaching tool to let young people know it wasn't that long ago that this is still here. What do you say to those people who will say they're concerned about teaching this sort of history to young white children because they worry that they will feel bad about themselves? Well, one, you can't let, let a child leave thinking you're blaming them. Mm-hmm. Now, you're not even blaming their parents. Hopefully I'm inspiring that white child with the stories of the past to join with the children of color to make sure this never ever happens to another people. Is this where you end the tour? Yeah, kind of, sort of. There are a couple of more things I want to show you. Bland drives us back toward downtown, stopping just short of the bridge where her life and America really changed back in 1965. It's still named for another Confederate general and KKK leader, and Bland wouldn't change that. When you change names, you change history. I walked across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. All those bad things he did, mm-hmm. every time you walk across that bridge, I bet he's rolling in his grave. That's what Grandma <laughs> would say. Yeah, I mean, you know, Joanne Bland is just an incredible person to talk about, yeah. to talk to. You know, that conversation on the radio was, you know, 15 minutes. It was a long conversation. We don't usually do mm. pieces that long. But mm. but she 
is so compelling and just someone who you could just listen talk all day long. Yeah. It's just an incredible story. And we're so reliant on those people who lived through that history to tell us what it was like, yeah. right? To to bring the visceral details. Yes. And you found other people who can do that who are in your own family. Um specifically your mom and your uncle, right? Yes, this was, you know, the most personal thing I've done as a journalist. But yeah, I talked to my mom and my uncle about growing up in their hometown of Oxford and going through This is Oxford Oxford, North, North Carolina. Carolina. I gotta say yeah, North, Carolina. North Carolina. Oxford North go. Yeah, Oxford, North <laughs> Carolina. Um it was deeply segregated and there was, you know, violence and and, and they went through a lot. Just as kids, just as kids, they went through a lot. Yeah. Y'all feel like y'all are the civil rights generation? Of course, yes. Why? <laughs> oh, because of during the period of time that I was born, we couldn't eat at restaurants. We had to go to the side. I was going to an all-black school, and, of course, we had the raggedy books. Uh, we did not have the best buses, and we were constantly told how to act, how to walk when we were in public so that we would not get exposed or attacked in any way. And what, what about you, Uncle Anthony? Well, I was born in the early 60s, and on my birth certificate it has a Negro, so I guess I'm born in that time, that generation. And I, sometimes I looked at my older relatives, like my aunts and uncles, when uh, we were still farming at the time, and when some of the uh, older gentlemen came around that they used to work for, they still were saying, yes, sir, and no, sir. To the older white people that they used to work for? Right. And so they taught us to say that same thing, to say, yes, sir, and no, sir. Was there a point that you realized, like, you live in a segregated place? Like, I'm black, and because of that, it's different for me. Well, to me, it was just normal. We couldn't do a lot of things because of our color. We knew that. I always remember us going to the five and ten cent store Mama would give us the lecture. She would tell us not to move, stand still. And we had to wait in the back in the corner. And then the waitress would take her time and we had to go back to the car and eat the food. I do remember that because I, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, wow, they're sitting down. We, you know, we can't sit down. But because of the way my mama raised us, we didn't question it. It was just, this is what you do. Right. And, and just to add, I think that that's why my mother when she went shopping, she would leave us in front of the church. And my mom would park under these shaded trees and leave us there while she would go shopping uptown. It was very rare in our younger years that she would let us go with her uptown because she was so afraid. She was so afraid something would happen. And so, you know, we always waited for her to come back around that corner with some ice cream cone. Yes, <laughs> that was our treat. I've been good. <laughs> something did happen in Oxford, North Carolina in 1970 right across from where my great-grandfather lived. A young Black man, Henry Dickey Marrow, was brutally murdered outside a local store by the white shop owners who accused him of saying something they didn't like to a white woman. I mean, I want to stop right here just real quick because Oxford is such a small town, and I don't even think we really got this into the piece, but Henry Dickey Marrow, his wife is actually distantly related to us. What? 
I had no idea. That is crazy. Um, but she's actually a distant cousin to us. That's how small the town of Oxford is. Huh. And the other thing I was shocked about was learning how close my great-grandfather was to this store where the shooting happened. Like, his house was right across from it. You know, again, this is 1970, and another son of Oxford, Ben Chavis, who also got some relation to us, <laughs> uh, my mom's side, got some relation to us, he heard about the murder about an hour after it happened. I went to the local police station. I remember talking to Chief White. He says, well, it's under investigation. I said, under investigation? A man has been shot. Like I was agitating them for asking about it. Unlike my mom and uncle, you will read about Chavis in the history books. He's a civil rights leader. He was a card-carrying member of the NAACP by age 12 and would go on to become president of the organization. My only regret was that I probably should have gotten the movement when I was 6 rather than 12. By 14, he was a youth coordinator for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference led by none other than Martin Luther King Jr. So when Henry Marrow was killed, Chavis, in his early 20s, was already a seasoned organizer. After an all-white jury acquitted the men who shot Marrow, Chavis decided it was time for change. So we led a march from Oxford to Raleigh, which is about 45 miles. And we started out with maybe around a couple hundred people marching. By the time we got to Raleigh, we had over 3,000 people in the march. It just grew. Keep in mind, Oxford is a small town. Black people had to shop at white-owned businesses. So Chavis and others decided to hit the white people in town where it hurt, their pocketbooks. So what went into the decision to say, we are going to boycott and we are going to ask the black people in this community to do this economic withdrawal? It wasn't a singular decision. People knew that something needed to be done or else this is going to happen again. And, And we figured that Why spend our money with people who don't respect us? Why spend our money in a municipality that refuses to hire? There were no blacks working in the courthouse, in the clerk's office, none in the fire department, only one, I think, black guy in the police department. He wasn't allowed to arrest whites. And so we were marching not only and boycotting not only to uh, get justice for Henry Merrill, but we expanded it because we, we had certain demands. My mom and uncle were around 12 and 10 years old at this point. My grandparents didn't talk to them about the murder, but they remember the boycott and having to shop in nearby Roxborough. It was also a time of unrest. Protesters burned white-owned businesses and tobacco crops. Here's my mom. During that time, they also had a curfew, and my dad didn't get off until after 11. So he would get stopped by the sheriff or state troopers trying to find out why he was out. And he always had to keep his uniform on because then they knew he worked at the hospital. I was more fearful. My mom would stay up by the door looking out the window and we would stay up because she would send us to bed, but we couldn't sleep. We stayed awake until my father came home because we knew he was going to either get stopped by the state troopers or he was going to get stopped by the local cop or even, even by the FBI. One thing about, like, hearing them talk about my grandfather coming home late during this time of unrest, you could hear in, like, my uncle and my mom's voice, like, that it was really scary. It was really traumatic, right? And I had never really talked to them about it. Hmm. So even me hearing it, you know, it was the sort of thing that kind of shook me up. 
thank God my grandfather, who was an orderly, like he did make it home safely and always made it home safely. But you can still, you know, that affects children. Like they were kids um, and they were worried about their dad. Yeah. And that they clearly still carry that with them, that sense of anxiety. Yeah. 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 Um, But, you know, after months of protests, Ben Chavis said that change did come to Oxford, finally. A lot of our demands are met. People got jobs downtown Oxford for the first time in their life, and they're still working there. (laughs) So we desegregated a lot of the city. Now, a lot of the stores that refused to desegregate closed. Like the theater, rather than desegregate, just closed. And change came to the segregated schools as well. In the midst of all of this, in the fall of 1970, Uncle Anthony was part of a test group of black children sent to a white school. He was in third grade, the same grade as my son Reggie. He remembers being scared getting on that bus to school. Now we on a bus with mixed race. We didn't know anything about that. What was that like? Were they nice on the bus? This is what they did. They assigned seats. So they put us all together. So we went out there to sit with them. So y'all was still segregated on the bus? Still segregated. And every day, you know, we had bomb threats, which they a lot of times outside at the beginning of the school because they don't want us to Y'all had bomb threats? Yes, we had bomb threats. And yeah, because, you know, a lot of individuals in the community did not want us at the all-white school. It's crazy, right? Because I hear that exchange and you're like, clearly you're hearing this for the first time, the level of threat that your uncle as a child faced. You think you know your family story and it's not really until you sit (laughs) with them and and ask direct questions that you learn, you learn things you didn't know. What was it like to just absorb what they were telling you? I mean, I think I... I really didn't have any idea. I knew, you know, little bits and pieces of the story, but I didn't realize that they had really lived through this, like, historic event. Like, this was a big deal. And I I didn't really have or understand the weight of it Mm -hmm. until I really sat down and asked them the questions and heard their answers. So you sat with your family, your mom and your uncle, but also... These other people, you know, Joanne Bland and Fred Gray, who who also lived through this important civil rights history and and made a difference and are making a difference in their own way. What did you personally take away from all these conversations, do you think? You know, I think it's mixed. I think talking to, you know, my family members, talking to Joanne Bland, Fred Gray, you get the sense of the incredible odds that were stacked against them and how they stood up, each of them in their own way, and really did something incredible because the world, through no fault of their own, was cruel and mistreated them for no reason. So I think in that way, it gives me some inspiration and and lets me know what I need to do in my day-to-day life. But also, I mean, it it still can lead to some frustration because you still see so many things going on and, you know, you see people really kind of denying the history or Mm -hmm. acting like it was something that happened so long ago or it didn't really affect people or, like, it was no big Mm -hmm. deal and it's all It's all fixed now, right. It's it's all over. Yeah, it's all fixed now when it's like, you know, my mom and uncle, they're just in their 60s. It's not all over and done with. And, like, it really affected them, Mm. you know. So I think there's frustration but also some inspiration there as well. 
Aisha Roscoe is the host of Weekend Edition Sunday. It was such a pleasure to be able to talk with you about this. Thanks so much for sharing these stories, Aisha. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This episode was produced by Audrey Wynn and edited by Jenny Schmidt. Aisha's interviews originally aired on Weekend Edition Sunday and were produced by Samantha Balaban and edited by Shannon Rhodes. Up for Sunday is also produced by Justine Yan. Our supervising producer is Leanna Simstrom, and Irene Noguchi is our executive producer. I'm Rachel Martin. Up first, we'll be back tomorrow with all the news you need to start your week. Until then, have a great rest of your weekend. <laughs>